At the outset of this episode, the first of 2022, I want to encourage all Historical Belfast listeners to support the podcast on Patreon. For those that don't know, Patreon is a membership platform which allows you to support the podcast and receive in return membership perks. As an Historical Belfast patron, you will have access to bonus episodes and video content, early access to regular episodes, exclusive access to patron-only walking tours throughout the year, and regular On This Day in Belfast history updates. Most important of all, though, your Patreon support will ensure that this podcast continues to grow. While it remains important to me that the Historical Belfast podcast continues to be free to access, there are costs associated with keeping this show on the road, not to mention the time required to produce it. So, your support on Patreon would be very much appreciated at this time, and I will include a link in the episode notes. Alternatively, you can download the Patreon app for free and search for Historical Belfast. But for now, let's get back to the show. Welcome to episode 24 of the Historical Belfast podcast, the first episode of 2022, but also the last in the Sandy Row mini-series, which has been an absolute pleasure for me to make. I've decided to come to Sandy Row itself for the final episode and take a walk along the road that we've been exploring over the last few months. The focus of this episode will be on the historical plaques that I've encountered along the way. So come, take a walk with me and see what I've found. I've come first of all to King William Park, uh, where at the entrance a bronze tablet states that King William and his army passed this way from Carrickfergus on his march to the Battle of the Boyne. William's journey took him through Belfast, where he stayed at the old Belfast Castle before leaving again on the 17th of June 1690. It's reported that he stopped briefly at this very site before making another stop at Malone due to a rainstorm. So we can definitely place King William in the vicinity of Sandy Row in this period. King William Park that I'm standing in right now is very much the baby of Belfast's parks, probably the smallest in the city, possibly even the smallest in Ireland, and for many years a retreat for the senior citizens of the Sandy Row area. So small and inconspicuous, it's an oasis of calm amid the bustling traffic and the roads which surround it. In 1963, there was controversy during renovation works at the park when a sign bearing the name of the park was painted over by the council. The reason, said council officials, is that despite being commonly known as King William Park, the park had never been officially named. As soon as it was discovered to be an unofficial term, the name was erased from the existing sign. Today, the park's main attraction is the Belfast Wheel, which is just behind me a bronze map of the city which was donated by the new Belfast Community Arts Initiative. The 12 segments of the wheel contain a design from different community groups with each piece representing the organisation's home district. The park is beside a Moravian church dating from the late 1800s.
At the junction of Sandy Row, where it meets the Donegal Road, is a plaque of sorts featuring a triangle of snooker balls and a snooker cue. There are no words, no context, and no explanation as to its meaning. If you didn't know any better, you might think it were a piece of community art attached to the wall of Eulidia House. It is, however, to commemorate Alex Hurricane Higgins, the two-time world snooker champion who was found dead in this very complex at the age of 61. Born in Belfast on the 18th of March 1949, Higgins grew up with his three sisters here in Sandy Row. The son of a wheel tapper and a mother who augmented the family's meagre income by working as a cleaner, Higgins was a reasonable student at school. However, his life changed forever when he was 11 years old. He began to visit the jam pot, a run-down snooker hall not far from here, where he learned the rudiments of the game and began to earn money by challenging and beating his seniors. Soon the prodigious nature of the young Higgins talent became the talk of the community. Even if he always seemed able to crank his game to another level as soon as a sizeable side stake was up for grabs. Higgins always loved to gamble, and most of all, on his own ability. Nicknamed the Hurricane because of the speed of his play, Higgins became a sporting superstar, winning the world snooker title in 1972, the youngest ever player to do so at the time, aged just 22. A second world title remained elusive until 1982, when he had begun styling himself as the people's champion. After claiming the final frame of the final against his old rival Ray Reardon to win 18-15 with a brilliant 1-3-5 clearance, the sight of a tearful Higgins embracing his second wife Lynn and their baby daughter became one of televised sport's most iconic images. His life however began to unravel at pace from the mid-1980s onwards. Drink, drugs and gambling consumed his life while his performances on the table unsurprisingly deteriorated. As his form got worse whenever he lost, Higgins would seem to search for an excuse in either the stand or the refereeing, the table, the cloth, the temperature or the arena, anything other than an objective assessment of a decline that seemed more linked to his lifestyle. A heavy smoker since his youth, Higgins was diagnosed with throat cancer in 1997. And as the wins became even more sporadic despite attempts to return as a player and the money that he had earned from exhibitions all largely dried up, Higgins relied even more on cash handouts from friends and strangers alike. Returning to Belfast where he lived in sheltered accommodation close to his childhood home, Higgins endured years of cancer treatment becoming a near skeletal figure who would still attempt to hustle in snooker clubs for money and for drinks. His teeth had fallen out and he was reduced to living off baby food. But still he dreamed of making a comeback to competitive snooker and managed to play in a recent Legends tour organised by promoter Barry Hearn. In one of his last interviews, Higgins had confessed to feeling suicidal over that winter but had not taken his life because of the hurt that would have caused to those around him. He had watched but not enjoyed that year's World Championship, describing it as, quote, very predictable. And he added, I think the difference between me and them is that I was a much quicker thinker, had a much faster brain, and I was always several shots ahead, as if I had sat-nav around the table. I had such quick evaluation, and that's why I had the speed.
In 2016, to mark the 75th anniversary of the Belfast Blitz, Belfast City Council unveiled memorial plaques across the city. And one of these plaques is situated just where I'm standing now, at St Aidan's Parish Church in Blythe Street, off Sandy Road. On Easter Tuesday 1941, 203 metric tonnes of bombs and parachute mines, along with 800 firebomb canisters, were cast down by 180 German bombers who had taken off from northern France. For a more detailed account of the Easter Raid, you can listen back to episode 14 of the Historical Belfast podcast, which looked at the Blythe Street Blitz in more detail. In the course of the attack, a high-explosive bomb fell at the top of Blythe Street. It detonated outside the Harper family home at number 176. Firewatcher Louis Gilbert observed the destruction from the roof of Murray Sons & Co Limited, the tobacco manufacturers on the Linfield Road. He would have seen the terraced housing on both sides of the street terribly damaged, many with their facades blown off. Indeed, the Blythe Street bomb destroyed at least 30 houses. In number 176, where the bomb landed, James and Margaret Harper lived with their eight children. The house collapsed around all of those inside, and 16-year-old Anne Jane Harper was among the dead. A chain of air raid precaution wardens formed outside the street, helping to rescue the younger members of the family and pass them to the safety of the street. The commemorative plaque, which states that 13 people lost their lives here, was erected at St Aidan's Parish Church, where locals are said to have sheltered during the raid. However, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission lists 15 casualties in connection with Blythe Street. Two of them died subsequently at the nearby city hospital and this is perhaps the reason for their omission from the plaque. The 15 fatalities were Mary Jane Cook, John Cook, Ernest Victor Cook, David McKee Cook, Vera Todd, Violet Todd, Ella Elizabeth Todd, Sarah Jean Thompson, David McKee, Georgina McGarry, Henry John Miller, Rebecca Miller, Robert Craig, Anne Jean Harper and Rebecca Craig. The following are the words of Thomas Carnduff, the shipyard poet from Sandy Row, writing here in 1949. Walking along Sandy Row a few days ago, I was struck by the great changes which had taken place in that thoroughfare since I was a child. The brewery building, with its magnificent ornamental gateway, still retains its massive Victorian architecture. Even as a child with an inquiring mind, I could never discover any Sandy Row inhabitant who could remember anything being brewed in that building. The brewery building was a Sandy Row landmark, erected in 1869 by the Belfast and Ulster Brewing Company, who did not remain long in occupation and hence why Carnduff could not locate any memory of brewing taking place in it. There was brewing taking place here, even if nobody could remember it. In 1869, for example, the company were advertising a home brew which they were calling India Pale Ale, sold in nine-gallon casks. By the summer of 1869, however, the company found itself in dispute with its shareholders over the quality of the ale and the failure to appoint an adequate brewer. 
Within four years, the company had been liquidated and the building itself was to be sold at auction on the 29th of May, 1873. When the auction came around, the directors purchased for themselves the brewery building with a view to continue brewing under a new company, the Belfast Brewing Company Limited. In less than 10 years, the new company went into liquidation and the brewery building was auctioned again on the 12th of May, 1882. Brewing appears to have ceased entirely by this point, and from then until its redevelopment, the premises were occupied by various trades. However, beer and ale are not the reasons why the brewery buildings became a famous landmark on Sandy Row, rather because the building was used by the UVF South Belfast Regiment as a headquarters during the Third Home Rule Crisis. On the upper floor, local UVF units gathered regularly for drill instruction, while downstairs was used for rifle training. When the brewery was demolished, the stones forming the crest above the front entrance were retained and incorporated as a First World War memorial onto the community centre that replaced it. As we heard in a previous episode, men of the South Belfast UVF on the 10th and 11th of September 1914 mustered here at the brewery buildings before parading to the recruitment office at the Old Town Hall in Victoria Street for enlistment with the 36th Ulster Division. On Saturday the 12th of September 1914 then, those who had recently enlisted in the Ulster Division mustered again at the brewery, many of whom for the last time before making their journey to Donard Lodge camp to begin their military training. Walking further down Sandy Row then, you will encounter a fabulous statue called Mother Daughter Sister. Mother Daughter Sister is designed to be a reflection of the power of the women in this area and the vital role that they played within the Sandy Row community. It's a welcome addition to the landscape because when one looks around at the history of this city, you can't help but notice the anonymity of its women. The statues and murals tend to be of men, the architects of the buildings tended to be men, and in the cemeteries the historic headstones often refer to women through the men in their lives. Virginia Woolf wrote that for most of history, Anonymous was a woman, and in Belfast that has arguably been the case too. Mother Daughter Sister was unveiled in 2015 by Sandy Rose's oldest female resident, Gracie Graham. The project was led by Belfast South Community Resources, the same organisation that commissioned this podcast series on the history of Sandy Row. The statue's artist, Ross Wilson, said that Mother Daughter Sister is a homage to the women of Sandy Row and the immense contribution they have made to that community over generations. The sculpture is the result of several months of detailed consultation with a range of women's groups and portrays a young woman from an earlier time whose heart is filled with hopes and dreams for a better future. Belfast South Community Resources received financial support from the housing executive in the early stages of the project and they also generously granted use of the land upon which the sculpture has been placed. On the artwork's base there are words cast in bronze from a 1950s Doris Day song. Que sera sera. A favourite with many of the older women involved in the project, a song they sang as young women on the way to work a song they danced to after work, and a song whose lyrics helped them dream of what they could be one day. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. 
On the sculpture's back are several small objects, trinkets, personal items, the ring of a loved one, objects from family histories deep within Sandy Road. This sculpture celebrates the dynamic female culture and identity of Sandy Row and the generational contribution that women have made to this community, both in the family and in the workplace. Mother, daughter, sister has its beginnings in Sandy Row's past, but encourages all women to follow their dreams with hope-filled hearts into a hope-filled future. Further down Sandy Row is the last of the historical plaques that I'll be focusing on today. And ironically, this one is missing, taken to the local Sandy Row Orange Hall for safekeeping. When it was here though, it read, County Borough of Belfast, Boing Bridge, reconstructed 1936, opened by the Right Honourable Lord Mayor Sir Crawford McCullough. The opening ceremony took place on the 18th of December when, with a pair of gold scissors presented to him by the contractors H&J Martin, the Lord Mayor cut the ribbon to formally open the bridge linking Durham Street to Sandy Row. The new bridge had been under construction since September 1934 and was plagued with delays as contractors had to maintain a functioning railway service beneath it. It had replaced a version of the old bridge built in 1870 when Belfast was merely a small town, but it's since become unfit for purpose due to the modern pressures of traffic in what by 1936 was a great and busy city. The new bridge, it was hoped, would adequately meet the transport demands of its day, as well as catering for pedestrians to cross. The bridge was bedecked in bunting for the occasion, while music was provided by the Boyne Accordion Band for the assembled crowds. The ceremony was concluded by the playing of the national anthem by the band before the Lord Mayor and invited guests made their way to Belfast City Hall for luncheon. To hear more about the Boyne Bridge you can listen back to episode 22 of the Historical Belfast podcast when I was speaking to local Sandy Row historian Billy Dixon. And that, I'm afraid, brings us to the end of this Sandy Row miniseries. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Historical Belfast podcast. If you're enjoying it, be sure to share the podcast on your social media. It really does make a difference. And I'll be back very soon with a few exciting episodes that are in the pipeline and even some new intro music. <laughs>